Well, I would like to take a moment in opening this sermon in talking very directly uh, to the women here in Cross Point downtown. Um, I really believe that on Mother's Day, we have the opportunity not just to address mother, but all women, because we believe that there is incredible value and dignity and worth that God has given to you that I don't think the heart of Mother's Day really captures. Mother's Day, for so many, can be filled with guilt, condemnation, regrets. For some, it's filled with exuberant joy, but we don't assume that everybody feels the same way on a day such as today. And so here's what I'd like to do for us uh, together. This is for men and women, but for women in particular. I want us to level the ground at the foot of the cross today by reading you this article by a woman named Elise Fitzpatrick. She says, well, here it comes again. Mother's Day, or as I like to call it, the great day of guilt and discontent. Ugh, men don't know what to do with it. She's right. It terrifies them. They hope that the gift that they've chosen will please their wives and mothers. They don't know, they don't want to be known as an ungrateful person who failed to properly honor the woman who gave him life or birthed his children. Women don't know what to do with it either. Mother's Day angst sounds like this. I wish I were a mother. I wish I were a better mother. I wish I loved my mother. I wish my mother loved me. I wish my mom were still alive. I wish I hadn't aborted that child. I wish I had children. I wish I knew who my mother was. I wish I hadn't given my baby away. I wish my children loved me. I wish they would write. I wish they were still alive. Mother's Day is the law. It breeds discontent and guilt. We live in a sin-cursed world, and no matter how much we try to honor someone we love, it always seems to come out wrong. We can give the sweetest presents with the best of intentions, but still, it just never turns out the way we had hoped. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not the sort of woman who would seek to ban a day when I have the power to make my husband and sons cook for me. I'm not that stupid. But I would like to bring some gospel sanity to it. Here's what's wrong with Mother's Day in every other celebration of our own goodness. Anytime we seek satisfaction, honor, and glory in yourself, you're going to be dissatisfied. And that applies to both women and men. Anytime you look for someone to give you something that will make you feel like you've done a good job or finally a person of worth, you're going to be disappointed. Men will be disappointed because their wives or moms don't appreciate how much they've tried to appreciate them. Women will be disappointed because no matter how hard our husband and children seek to lavish us with praise, flowers, and gifts, there's always someone you know who's been given much more. Paltry baubles don't compare to his precious blood. We're living under the law of Mother's Day, which says if you're good, you'll get goodies. In the words of my daughter, it's the one day when I'm forced to look at either my own shortcomings resulting in guilt or the shortcoming of others who fail to appreciate me resulting in discontent. It's the one day we're told over and over that our identity as women is not rooted in the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, but in our own ability to be the source of life and goodness for all. Whether When we judge whether we're finally okay based on the response of others rather than the gospel of grace, Mother's Day is the law, and that's why it breeds discontent and guilt. There's no hallmark cards for the crucifixion. The true source of happiness is not found in being praised 
or anything that we have ever done. True happiness is found in dying to ourselves and celebrating what Christ has already done for us. True happiness is here. It's found in Jesus' work. The best gift any woman or man has ever received was given on another Mother's Day. This one was 2,000 years ago in a borrowed feeding trough when God was born and nursed at a young mother's breast. It continued to be given some 30 years later when that perfect son of man was nailed to a tree and his father turned away from him while his mother wept. Nothing, just blood and despair and anguish, it is finished for us. There's no Hallmark cards for that. You're a beloved daughter, above all. Whatever happens this Sunday, remember this. You're loved. You're forgiven. You are righteous. Not because anything you can do, but only because of what Jesus has already done. So go ahead and receive praise and gifts with a smile. But remember, paltry bubbles aren't anything in comparison to the one drop of that precious blood. His work has made you his, and he has given you an eternal identity. You are his beloved daughter in whom he is well pleased. Women, would you stand? All women, would you stand? We want to tell you happy daughters say. You may be seated. To remember that who we are is rooted in who Christ is and what he's done for us. That's the reminder that we have today. That's the reminder that we have when we seek to follow the good shepherd And here's why that's really important. Because each and every day you're hearing all these voices telling you something. And and if you're like me, you're listening to those voices. And here's what those voices end up doing. They end up speaking to you things that aren't true. Right? And you start to believe those voices. You start to actually believe this is true about me. When really it's not. Because the only thing that speaks to us, the truth of who we are, is God's word that first tells us that our identity or who we are is linked to or rooted in the person and work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what the gospel proclaims to us. This is what we must have our identity rooted in. And if we don't, we'll find ourselves filled with guilt disappointment and despair which voices are you listening to there's a lot of voices that we can be prone to hear on tv advertisements or whatever it was and really what is is all is noise and it's noise that can drown out the only voice that really matters so i want to tell you this in an illustration um, a few months ago, uh, my dog, uh, my dog is like the neighborhood dog, like everybody walks their dog by my fence line, and he is the nicest dog in all the world. I'll tell you, Hash is just super nice to everybody, such a friendly uh, face, and so people walk along the fence line, and they all want to see him and pet him and play with him, and so uh, there's a, a new neighbor moved into town, and he had a dog as well. He was a German shepherd, canine. Actually, he's a canine police officer, and this was a canine cop dog in training. Uh, came and really liked 
my dog Hash really was by the fence line. I saw Chase, the owner, uh, out there with him, and I said, hey, Chase, why don't we go ahead and, and bring in Ares, who's the canine um, police dog. Uh, I, I said, you know, it seems like, seems like they really like each other. And, and Jay said, you know, that's a great idea because I want him to get used to other dogs. And so open up the gate, bring in Ares, and he and Hash just have a blast. I mean, they are playing around. They're having a great time. They're all muddy and dirty by the end of it. You got to give them a bath in order to bring them into the house uh, that night. Um, but they just had a blast. And Hash is always looking for Ares after this moment uh, because he knows that it, it's a good bud. In fact, he's kind of one of those dogs where this is like his best friend now, his BFF. Uh, so Ares comes walking by another day. I'm driving home. Uh, I park in front of the yard and I see, as I see them there, I, I say, hey, uh, Chase, why don't you let me uh, let Hash come out and play with Ares? Um, so Chase is out there playing fetch with a dog, and he's like, yeah, that's a really good idea. Uh, so I go, which was not such a good idea, uh, over to the, the gate, and, uh, and I open the gate, um, and Hash is super excited to see Ares. And so I don't have my leash. Uh, he, he doesn't even have a collar on. Um, and so I open the gate, and then Hash bolts for Ares, like in absolute jubilant joy, just like this big, goofy dog <laughs> running after Ares. And then Ares gets caught off guard. He's like, uh, what just happened? And, you know, he thinks he's getting attacked by this dog who's just wanting to play with him. And so Ares flips into attack mode, grabs Hash's neck, and before I know it, he's locked in to this dog's mouth and the noise is going on the dog's adrenaline is pumping I'm yelling my dog's yelping he's growling his owner's trying to say hey stop giving him the command the dog can't hear it doesn't know what's going on we both get down there in order to help and then finally we get Aries's mouth off of my dog's neck and then he grabs my right calf so I'm on the ground and my calf is in Aries's mouth like a chicken leg right and so, and I'll tell you what, that canine went in deep <laughs> that day. Um, but finally, in the, in, the, in the moment, Chase was able to grab his mouth, get next to his ear, and he gave him the command, and immediately the dog just flipped. It was like, where's my ball? Where's my ball? That's all the dog was thinking about. What's the next thing? He didn't realize what had happened, but he knew the command of his master. He listened to the command of his master, and he obeyed him. But it was the noise that drowned it out that allowed the noise in his own adrenaline that had drowned it out that caused him not to realize that that was something that you shouldn't do. So case in point, Ares needs uh, a little bit more training uh, as a police canine uh, cop. Um, uh, but secondly, um, are you listening to the voice that matters? Are you listening to the voice that you need to obey? Or is the world drowning out that voice to where you can't hear it? And you're walking in a completely different direction. Because the question that we're left here at the end of chapter 10, if you look at, I'm sorry, not the end of chapter 10, at, at the end of this passage in verse 20, is they said, many of them said he has a demon and he is insane. Why listen to him? So the Jews are asking the question, what do you do with this guy Jesus? What do you do with him? Why listen to him? Many say he's de demonic. Many say that he's insane, which are actually valid arguments for Jesus if he is not the Savior. Why should we listen to him? 
And that's the, how I want to unpack this passage today, is why should we listen to the Savior, Jesus Christ? John chapter 10, verse 10 says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. So the thief comes, and the intention of the thief is to steal, kill, and destroy. And here, this, this thing is what we see going on ever since the beginnings of the world. You see, in the garden, Adam and Eve were in the garden, and God gave them a good command. And here was God's good command. Adam and Eve, you have the whole place. It's all yours. There's just one thing that's going to st- steal life from you, that's going to take life from you. And here's the one thing. If you disobey my command, if you don't listen to me, your life, your life will be taken from you. But if you listen to me, you'll have life and have it abundantly. So the, the command of God from the beginning was that they would have the abundant life. But they listened the voice of the enemy. And it's ironic. You have to know the voice of God in order to understand the voice of the enemy. And here's why. Because the voice of the enemy sounds so much like the voice of God sometimes. Because Satan came in the form of a snake and said the same, it said the same words to them in effect. Do you want the abundant life? Do you want the abundant life? Don't listen to God. He doesn't want to give you life. He's, he's trying to take life away from you. In fact, he, he has not given you the fullness of life. If you eat of this fruit, you'll have life and have it abundantly if you disobey God. See, those are the voices that crowd our mind because they sound so appealing. They sound so life-giving. But at the end of the day, they are those which take from us but can never give to us. And what we're seeing Jesus saying is, I'm rewriting the story. I'm rewriting that story. There was a time where Adam and Eve did disobey and did sin against God, and all mankind had followed the same path. And what Jesus is saying is, I have come to remake you. Don't listen to the thief. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But listen to me because I come to offer you the abundant life. We are to listen to Jesus because Jesus comes to offer the abundant life. And he comes with pure motivations, completely to give, never to take. He just wants us to have that life and have it in abundance. And how does he give that life? Number one, he lays down his life. Verse 11, he lays down his life. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Well, how can I trust Jesus? Like, who's to say that Jesus doesn't want to take from me the way that the thief wants to take from me? How can I trust him? How can I know that what he wants to do is pure? Well, Jesus laid down his life for the sheep. Jesus went all the way to the cross for the sheep. Where Satan comes to take, Jesus came to give. Now, now, some people think that Jesus died merely to prove his love for us. It's as if he's falling off the cliff telling his beloved, I love you, I love you, I love you, trying to prove that he loves his beloved. But it's so much more than that. 
He died to give his love to us. Because you have to see that God's love could never be given to us unless Jesus Christ died. Because Jesus, what he did in his death on the cross was make the unlovable lovely. He gave us his goodness in righteousness. It's called substitutionary atonement. It means that there had to be a better person on the cross for that forgiveness to be given to us. It means that our sin was put and punished on him. He was punished in our place. That the Lamb of God was the perfect sinless sacrifice that died on the cross for our sins. He gave his life for the sheep. He gave his life for the sheep. That's what we deserved. And he took it. And he was perfect. Sinless. What motivation would he have to come and be our shepherd unless it was to give that which we did not have? What motivation? And it was so that we would be given life and be given it in abundance. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, God made him who never, seen, never tasted sin himself. But he put our sin on him. He made him sin so that in him we might become who Christ is. And who is Christ? He is the righteousness of God. So that God's love for you is based on the perfect sacrifice of his son Jesus Christ. He clothes us. He clothes us with the righteousness of the sinless, spotless lamb. That's what the good shepherd came to do. Verses 12 and 13 says that he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. There's a little compare and contrast happening between who is the real good shepherd and who is the hired hand. The hired hand is paid to do a job. And if he can't receive payment, or if that payment should not be worth enough for him, he's going to flee. And so when his life is on the line, the hired hand says, this is not doing a cost-benefit analysis on it. This is not worth it for me. I'm out. And the sheep are left vulnerable and open to attack. Now, each of us have children, or for those who do have children, and even if you don't, you can get your mind around this, is that parents will take care of their children in a way that protects their children like no other person will. Now, there are people that will protect and care for their children, but all in all, I know as a parent, I trust me and my wife the most with our children because why? They're mine. I'm given responsibility for them. That's a call and a command from God. Jesus Christ is given that same responsibility for the sheep. And that's a call and command from God. And he lays his life down. The hired hand flees, but Jesus knocks the teeth out of the wolf. That's what we see takes place here. The wolf comes to take the sheep, and Jesus takes his staff like a good shepherd, and he knocks his teeth out. Literally, the wolf is the devil, and Jesus knocking the teeth out of the devil just makes him useless, harmless. He can be a little pet over in the corner because Jesus died so that we might live. And how did Jesus die so that we can live is he took death to the cleaners. 
He didn't die simply to, he, he, he didn't die so that death could have victory over him. He died so that he could look death in the eye and see it and say, you're finished. That's how he gave his life for the sheep. It wasn't like he gained some little momentary victory for himself. He didn't need this victory for himself. We needed that victory. And Jesus gave it to us. He's a good shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep. Number two, he knows the sheep. He knows the sheep. That's really, really good. Really, really important to know that the good shepherd knows the sheep. Look with me at verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I, I, I don't know about you, but this verse is, I find so much freedom, in, and here's why. He knows me, and he still lays down his life for me. Like, I'm, I'm jacked up. I, I, I have problems. I've got sin that runs deep. I don't know about you guys, but, like, there's sin that I'm really, I can't get over this. Like, God... Like, how come, how come this thing keeps creeping up its ugly head in my life? If Jesus really knew about this, would he die for me? Yes. He knows his sheep, and his sheep know him. It, no matter how many times you've been rejected by the world, which happens quite often in my experience, probably in your experience as well, because the world gets to know you a little bit, because the world realizes that you're not perfect, that you've got problems, Maybe because you're a different skin color or nationality or ethnicity or gender, whatever it is, from the rest of the people around you. The world rejects you. Jesus knows those things about you, and he accepts you completely and totally. That's the depth of God's love, is that he knows everything about us. The good, bad, and the ugly, the way he made us in his image, in the Imago Dei, and also the way that we have looked in the face of the Imago Dei and said we don't want it and we're willing to destroy it because of our sin, he still receives us and accepts us. He won't reject us because he knows us. And then he allows us to know him. I mean, that's really good that he knows us, but we can know him. And we know that voice. My kids know the voice of their father. So if we are in a playground, like sometimes we'll go over to Lake Eola in the playground and the place will just be hopping with tons and tons of kids and our kids will be in those tons of kids and you can't even figure out which one's yours sometimes because they're all there. All I got to do is say real loudly, Camden, Adeline, Lily, come here. And then three kids just come, boom, right there. Let's go home. Sometimes there's a little temper tantrum in the middle of it, but that's generally, that's generally what happens. They know me. They know my voice. They know the voice of their father. And so it is with the sheep in Jesus Christ. Here's this picture of the shepherd and the sheep. It's not so sentimental. It's sheep are, are weak. They're vulnerable. And they're just plain dumb animals. <laughs> like if you know anything about sheep, you know that they're weak and they're vulnerable and they're dumb. Like sheep, if they're grazing in a pasture and they run out of grass in that pasture, they won't leave that pasture unless a shepherd takes them out of it. And so they'll continue to graze in this bare pasture and they'll just eat one another excrement until they die. Like that's that why a sheep need a shepherd because the shepherd has to show them where to find food. 
A sheep will blindly follow one another. There's a, a, a about 10 years ago in Turkey, there was 1,500 sheep fall off of a cliff because one took the tumble first and the rest followed down. 400 of them died. True story. Google it. Everything on Google's true, right? <laughs> no. Check your sources. I did check my sources on that one, by the way. Um, sheep also are prone to wonder. You know the story of the lost sheep where the shepherd would leave 99 to go after the one? The shepherd would really do that. Go after the 99 to get the, to, to the one. And a little backstory to some of that that some of the people there would have been familiar with. Sometimes if that sheep would wander over and over and over again, what the shepherd would do was break the sheep's leg and put them over his shoulders and carry them around until those legs healed. So that way the sheep got used to being next to the shepherd. And when that le- those legs healed, the sheep would be by the shepherd's side all the time. Because he knows his sheep and his sheep knows him. Now, how many of us want our legs broken, right? How many of us have had our legs broken? Maybe that's a better statement. I think sometimes, yeah, God will break your legs to keep you close to you, to him. He will. Because it's better to have broken legs than a dead heart. And this is the grace of God that knows you and loves you and disciplines you in the midst of it. Number three, Jesus calls his sheep together into One flock with one shepherd. Verse 16. One flock, one shepherd. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus is saying that all Israel is not Israel. He's saying that those who had thought that the message of salvation is only for the Jews, it's not just for the Jews. It's also for the Gentiles. Because the only precondition to salvation in Christ Jesus is Christ Jesus. That's why he says, I am the door. There's no other way into the kingdom of God but through that door who is Jesus. And once Jesus is the door, you are in the flock. You are God's sheep. And I can't help but think that when Jesus said these words, he had you and me in mind. Because chances are, most of us are from a non-Jewish lineage or heritage. And so when Jesus speaks of that, it caused a big trouble in Sir in the church. But God resolved it by saying that it's not about whose parents you have. It's not about your nationality. It's not about race or ethnicity. You know, the, the, the world says, if you want to be accepted, you have to come through this door. If you want to be accepted, you have to come through this door. And then it has prejudices and stereotypes that won't allow certain people in based upon certain things that don't meet their qualifications. Jesus says the only qualification for his sheep to go through that door is Jesus. And Jesus calls them from the furthest parts of the earth and brings them in. In fact, the church is a very diverse place. One of the things I love looking around this place today is to see the diversity of what God has brought into his fold, the church, based upon one thing, and that there is one flock and there is one shepherd for all time, for all people, in all places. It's the church. And Jesus himself is the head of the church. He is the firstborn from among the dead. That's why he laid down his life to die for his sheep. So that there would be one flock. So that there would be no division among them. So that they would all together be loved by the Father. And they would love the Father as well. 
One shepherd, one sheep, one church, one death, one hope. And that salvation comes through him who is Christ Jesus. Number four, we see that God is in complete control. If you read verse 17 and 18 with me, it says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. See, Jesus has something that no one else has. He has the authority of the Father. He is loved so much, entrusted so much by the Father, that he has complete authority. The authority not only to give up his life, but to take it up again. That's the only one who could really defeat death, is the one who has the authority over death who has the authority to look at it in the eye and say, you're not going to win, and then take his life back up again. The crucifixion was never an accident. The cross was not a mistake. It was intended by God, planned by God, predestined by God since the foundation of the world. It was planned in God's perfect will that his son would be crushed. And then his son would be raised again. And when his son is raised again, the life that he was raised up for, the resurrection life, would be given to those sheep. Because the love of the father towards the son is now given by the shepherd to the sheep. You see that connection that God's love for us is connected to his love in Christ Jesus. God loves you like he loves his son, Jesus Christ. He's in complete control. And God will allow the difficult things in life, the hard things to bring about that reality. Because God's current concern and purpose for us is that we would follow him. And so it says in Romans 8, 28, then we know In all things, God works for the good of those who are called in accordance with his purpose. And so while God is in complete control of all things, he is working for our good. So that at the end of the day, we can see as God's children that he's a good, good father. And he will be glorified in all things. That God's glory never, never, ever goes against our good. And our good never, never comes in competition with the glory of God. God gives Jesus total authority. And what did Jesus do? He drank down the cup of God's wrath for our sin to where there was not a drop left in it. Jesus had the authority to receive the punishment for our sin in complete control. And he went through with it in obedience, as it says in Philippians, to the point of death, even death on the cross. He's in complete control. And the salvation story is a story of God's sovereignty, God's knowing of everything before it even takes place, and God's knowing of everything before it even takes place to allow his only son to be crucified and to die horrific death on the cross. But he's in all control. I said earlier that Jesus knocked the teeth out of the wolf. You have to know that's true. Because the greatest voice that we're afraid of today is the voice of death. And Jesus says death has no teeth. Sin has no power. Satan has no authority. 
because Jesus has the authority to give his life and to take it up again. Oh, sin, where is your power? Oh, death, where is your sting? Probably the biggest concern for my kids can be fear of what's going to happen. I kind of be like me, their dad. I don't know what's going to happen in life. I don't know this or that about life or when my time is going to come. But I know God knows. And it gives me confidence. Because I know God loves me. And I know God's going to use no matter what might happen, my death included, for his glory and my good. And so I trust him. That's what the psalmist cries out in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. There's a little bit of irony in that passage. Because you see the shepherd, a sheep seeing the shepherd with his rod and his staff would have to be afraid. Because that rod and staff keeps that sheep in line. When that shepherd's getting ready to use that rod and that staff, it is to keep the sheep in line and close by. And so the sheep have a a healthy fear of the shepherd, while at the same time, when the wolf comes, they get near the shepherd because they trust that the same rod and staff that would be used to discipline them is the same rod and staff that would be used to fight the wolf, to fin the wolf off. It's what's called the fear of the Lord, right? We fear God because he disciplines us. It's a healthy fear. It's a fear because we know that should we do this, God might break our legs to bring us back into the flock. But at the same time, we revere God because God also protects us in the same means, the same hand that disciplines us is the same hand that protects us and provides for us. And so we trust the shepherd, even in our discipline, knowing that God's love for us produces a discipline. Because he loves us. Maybe God's had to break your legs to bring you in here. Maybe God has had to show us today that that same rod of discipline is the same rod of protection by which he makes sure that we stay in the fold and that there is no way an enemy is getting in. We trust in him. I think the question that we're left to ask is this question. Is he your good shepherd? Is Jesus your good shepherd. And if that's true, like the Jews said when he caused a commotion among them, why listen to him? Because he's trustworthy. Because you can trust him. And how do you know you're trusting in him? You will obey him. And finally, I want to leave with three points of application for this sermon. I want to give you some things to chew on and to take home as it relates to trusting in Jesus as our good shepherd, and that's that we obey him. And I want to think through our obedience to God in three ways. Number one, if he is the good shepherd, then we are to obey him totally. Obey him totally. There is not an area where God does not have the say-so over our life Is he our good shepherd. If we are like those weak and vulnerable and dumb sheep... <laughs> which we are, then we have to trust every word that comes out of his mouth. And when he says to do something, we do it. We obey him totally. And don't assume that you're obeying God totally right now. I want to give you a little exercise. Take every aspect of your life. Take the big elements of your life. Let's say finances, marriage, children, family, occupation, whatever it is. Maybe write down the big ten things of your life. And ask, go through those ten things and ask this question. Jesus, 
Are you Lord? Now, you're going to write down those ten things, and you're going to be like, oh, man, maybe like one of them. Maybe none of them. And, and, and you're going to realize, do you just say with your mouth that Jesus is the good shepherd? Or do you practically believe it? Because if you practically believe it, Jesus has complete say-so over those areas and elements of your life. Number two, obey him dependently. Obey him dependently. This means that we can't obey him on our own strength. Even we need his help to obey him. Like, I struggle for obedience. And you know what I have to do when I struggle for obedience? I have to realize that I'm struggling for it. And I have to cry out to God and say, God, help me. This path is hard for me to walk. But I realize, like the proverb says, trust in the Lord in all your ways and lean not on your own understanding and he will make straight your paths. I realize that that's true. And so I cry out to God in dependence. God, I need you. And my prayer life is a life that is largely saying, God, I'm weak, I'm vulnerable, and I'm dumb, and I need your help so that I can obey you totally. Are you dependently obeying God, or are you relying on your own strength? And if you are, it's not real obedience. Third point, obey him joyfully. Obey him joyfully. If God does have your good in mind, it should not produce begrudging obedience. If God has your good in mind and you trust that, it should not produce begrudging obedience. Oh, God, really? I have to do this? Oh, God, you're going to make me do this? Like a kid who doesn't get something they want and they do it. And, 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 and you ask them, for example, you can ask your kid to, to sit down and they say, okay, I'm sitting down, but I'm standing up on the inside. <laughs> This begrudging obedience that says, I don't want to do it, but you're going to make me do it, so I'm going to do it. No, 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 no. No, no. He knows us, and we know him. And because we know him, we can obey him, and we can obey him with joy. And that joy is the joy of serving the Lord. There's something sweet about serving the Lord, friends. Living your life completely and totally for the shepherd. There's something that's so sweet in that that God wants you to taste. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. He wants you to taste it. And in tasting of that sweetness, he wants you to be by his side every step of the way so that you would find joy in the obedience of being close to the shepherd. Is he your good shepherd? Then you will obey him totally you will obey him dependently, and you'll obey him joyfully. In this last passage of part of the passage, verses 20 and 21, they don't know what to do with Jesus, which is often the way the world is. They don't know what to do with Jesus. Jesus always causes controversy. He always does. Now, you could wait until the controversy subsides, but then you're never off the fence in making a decision. I want there to be a decision here today for you, because there's not ever going to be a time where there's no controversy about Jesus. There is controversy surrounding him now. There'll be tomorrow. And actually, if you just wait for the next year, five years, ten years in this country, it's just going to grow and grow and grow. But what the good shepherd calls the sheep to do right now, it says, my sheep will follow me. And your decision right now is saying, okay, Jesus, I'll follow you. Listen to him. Because the shepherd 
is the lamb that was slain. John opens in his gospel. He says in John 1.29, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold him. Trust him. Obey him. Follow after him. Because, friends, there will never be a time where this good shepherd isn't bringing about the division of this world. Why? So that his sheep would be called from the far reaches of the chaos into his fold. And maybe that is what God is doing in you right now. Will you follow? Whether you've been following after Christ for a long time or today for the first time, why listen to Jesus? Because he's the good shepherd and he is worthy of all our obedience. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that right now the only thing that we need to follow after you is to trust you. We don't have to come with a perfect track record. In fact, God, you tell us that our track record isn't good to begin with. So right now we come to you with our mess, with our brokenness, with our guilt, with our shame, with our despair. And we come to you, good shepherd, and we say, God, we are prone to wonder. We are prone to flee. We're prone to follow other sheep off the cliff. God, we're prone to all the things of danger that a sheep is prone towards, God. But God, here you are with your rod and staff comforting us. So we draw near because we hear your voice because you know us by name and we know you. God, would your voice right now call the lost, bring them in? Would you also, God, bring to completion in those who are yours the work you have started as we seek to trust you and obey you in all things. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Church says.